Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, What Would Jesus Undo? In this series, we'll open up ourselves to discover the knots in our lives that Jesus wants to undo so that we can live an authentic faith. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We'd love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select contact us, and send us an email. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? It's a very intense intro. Um, <laughs> but I want, I want to welcome you to Valley Brook again. If you're new here, we're just so glad that you're here to join us. Uh, you know, we're just, we're, we're honored that you're here. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been in a series called How to Neighbor, and we really focus on a church, how do we love people well? Um, and we don't always do a good job at that, but we went over a bunch of different topics on how we can love well. And man, it has been so cool to see God work and hear stories of the fruit of God working through the lives of each one of you as you asked yourself the question, how could you neighbor better? How could you love your friends and your family and the people in this world uh, better? But we're going to finish up the summer and then we're right into the fall. Oh, fall is almost here. I'm sorry, kids. School is almost starting again. But we're going to head right up into the fall with, with this series called what would Jesus undo? And this is a series that is based off of the tagline, if Jesus was editing your life, what would he undo? If Jesus was editing your life, what would he undo? And we're going to look through a bunch of postures of our hearts that, that come against what God says we should be as Christians and as believers, and honestly, just as people in general, that we have these different things that we all struggle with and different issues that are issues of the heart that Jesus said are so important. See, when we see Jesus walk and we see Jesus teach, he was way more concerned with the issues of the heart than he was with the outward actions and, and following all the correct rules. He cared about the heart because when we deal with the heart, it translates in actions, you know, in, in itself. And so I'm really excited about this series. It's going to be a great way that we can challenge each other as we look into his word. We're going to be focusing on things like indifference and, and hollow worship and hypocrisy. But today, we're going to start with something that, that I really feel grieves God's heart and, and that all of us, if not most of us, but I would say all of us really struggle with, and it's this thing called spiritual pride. It's this thing called spiritual pride, and really the heart and the foundation of where we're headed today is this. When we find our value and our meaning in ourselves and what we can accomplish and how we compared to compare to others, rather than finding it in Christ, then we struggle with spiritual pride. And so this morning, or this week, I was preparing for my message, and uh, you know, this is like a really fun thing to teach on this morning. Spiritual pride is like really a joy to talk. It's really a joyful message. And so I'm like, I gotta start with a, a funny story, and usually funny stories are at my expense. But you know, it, my wife would tell you that sometimes, I struggle uh, with pride in my life in certain areas, uh, in a lot of areas. And, and this is a message, trust me, church, that I spoke over myself all week, every day, as the Lord convicted my heart. And so, but it was, it was ironic how this worked, because I was trying to think of like a, a funny story. And I was like, honey, I, I was texting her, I was here, and I was like, hey, I want to tell a story of, of a prideful moment of mine, kind of like a, you were right, I was wrong, but I don't want to admit that I was wrong moment, um, but I can't think of any. Like, who would have known? I was, like, <laughs> I was sitting there and like, the Lord is convicting me even through this. I'm like, I can't think of something. I know that there's probably plenty. And so I texted her that and then immediately I saw these, those three little text bubbles. <laughs> 
Like immediately, she's, my wife does not like text messages. She has never replied to a message to me in my life faster than this. And so I get a message. She's like, oh, th- what about this story? I'm like, that's funny. And then I get another message. What about this? And my phone is blowing up with all of these stories that my wife, it was like way too easy and humbling for her to think of a story. But one of the stories, well, there's two. One of them you didn't get, but I'm going to share anyway, and you're going to laugh. But my wife, Lisa, by the way, is sitting up here. That's why I keep pointing there. But um, there was a story about a prideful driving moment of, of mine when Lisa and I used to live in Tennessee. Um, you know, I, I consider myself a, a good driver, like a solid driver. And one of my biggest pet peeves, as some of you might share, is when the person that is not driving the car feels that they can drive the car better than you can, and they like to let you know that often. We call it backseat drivers or co-pilots, and um, my wife, it falls into that category quite a bit. So does my mom. Um, you know, learning to drive was difficult. And so, you know, so we're driving along, and like, I consider myself a good driver. Like, I have my CDL. Like, I'm, I'm like, you know, kind of like a professional driver. And so we're driving my beautiful, like, you know, decked out, uh, what was it, a Honda Odyssey red minivan. I called it the man van. And so we're driving this minivan, and, and we're driving down this, this, this neighborhood, and Lisa says, Dan, you're driving so close to the side of the road. Just like that. She said it like that. And so, like, I'm like, oh, okay. And so I just kind of ignored it, and she said again, Dan, you're dri- you, do you understand how close to the side of the road you're driving? And I was like, honey, I know how to drive my car. Let me drive. Like, we're fine. And so, like, I'm, like, getting a little frustrated because she kept reminding me and pointing it out. And so in my head, <laughs> I had this really great idea of, like, I'm going to show you how close I can drive to the side of the road because if you think this is how close I can drive, wait till you see how close I can drive. And so... <laughs> So I'm driving along, and, and I, I'm getting, like, really close. And she's like, stop it, stop it. And then all of a sudden, wham, I didn't technically crash the car, but I, I hit a mailbox, an oncoming mailbox. <laughs> Hang on, it gets better. Just, not with the whole car, but just with the side view mirror. So she's on the side. Thank God the window was open, but God had this moment that he's like, <laughs> And so I'm driving. Hit the wind, hit the side, rear view mirror, it flies into the car and hits me directly into the face. And so, like, and so my beautiful bride just sat there with the look, and husbands, you know the look. She goes, I told you. And I was like so frustrated and so humbled. And, and you know, there's another story just really quickly. Um, we were out to dinner one night and, and we were, it was the end of the year. I think it was New Year's Eve. And we were out at our favorite restaurant and we were ordering and we were getting dessert and, and I ordered a cheesecake. And Lisa's like, don't you want to ask if the cheesecake has nuts in it? See, I have a life-threatening food allergy to nuts. And, and so I'm like, honey, I'm fine. Like, I, I just, I felt like she was parenting me a little bit. And so I'm like, honey, I'm fine. Like, it's fine. The cheesecake doesn't have nuts. And she's like, are you sure you shouldn't ask? I'm like, honey, I'm fine. There's no nuts in the cheesecake. It would have said it. We're fine. We're good. I get the cheesecake. Um, and I started eating the cheesecake, and then my throat started to close. Church, I want to tell you the pride in my heart in this moment. I contemplated dying before telling my wife that she was right and I should have asked about the stupid cheesecake. 
Like in my head, I'm, I'm planning, because I have an EpiPen, and I'm like, maybe if I sneak into the bathroom, I can take the EpiPen, and she won't know, and I'll just sit there and kind of just pretend and suck out. Like, do I have Benadryl somewhere? Like I'm literally figuring out ways to get out of this so that I don't have to say, honey, you were right. And the night ended up being a really great way to spend New Year's Eve in the hospital, and I got to the hospital, I remember, at 12.05, which is when your deductible and your health insurance changes over. So it was just a humbling, humbling, humbling experience for me. And, and in my marriage, in the you know, six and a half years of marriage, there's been many of those moments in my life. And so we all, at some point, have had those moments, right? The I was wrong, you were right. You might not want to say it, but we've had those moments or the I'm sorry moment. See, there's a saying, pride comes before the what? Pride comes before the fall. See, we've all experienced those moments and that pride, but Jesus, don't miss this this morning, Jesus wants to undo the pride in our lives because he doesn't want us to go through the fall. Jesus wants to undo the pride in each one of our lives because he doesn't want us to feel the effects that the fall can bring in our lives. See, today, this morning, we're going um, to look into the book of Luke. And there's this really great story in Luke chapter 18. And, and this story is about two guys. So a little background, the story about two guys that are in the same place for the same purpose. See, two guys, one is a Pharisee. He's the good guy, okay? And then one is the tax collector. He's the bad guy. And so these two guys, the Pharisee, the good guy, the tax collector, the bad guy, they go into the temple or, or the modern day equivalent, like the church, the presence of God in order to pray. And so Jesus in this story tells us what they pray. Then he tells us that one of the, or how they pray, what they pray. And then they tell us that one of these men leaves right before God and one of them doesn't, but it's not who we think. So let's pick up the story, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It's on the screen, and you can check out the Version app or your Bible. And so chapter nine, or, uh, verse 9 says this, and he, so being Jesus, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So he, Jesus, told this parable, which is a story that's meant to teach to some people, not everyone, but to a specific group of people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, they had it figured out, and they viewed others, because they thought they had it figured out, they viewed others with contempt. See, a lot of times, and a lot of us know this, but it's hard to identify, the position of our heart affect how we treat other people, right? The position of our hearts affect how we treat other people. There's a saying that the vertical will always affect the horizontal, that if your heart isn't right before the Lord, it's going to come out in weird and sinful and wrong ways towards one another. So Jesus is speaking to a specific audience, and this is what he says. Verse 10 picks up and says, two men went into the, t- into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So let's stop here for a second. So we see these two guys, and I want to give you a little background because it's important to understand the dynamics that were happening here, more than just good guy and bad guy. See, the Pharisee was the respected figure. In this story, in this parable, he was a respected figure of the time. They were the, the officers of, of the, the religious law. There were 613 laws in the Old Testament. And not only did the Pharisee know them all, but they followed them all to a T. And their lives were, were dedicated to following the law and helping other, or challenging other people to follow as well. They're the pastor, the church leader. So you have the Pharisee coming into the church, and then you have a tax collector. 
Some translations, it's interesting, they don't just use the word tax collector, they use the word despised tax collector. See, you see, in the background of this, in this story, the tax collector didn't just collect taxes for his own government, but the tax collector collected taxes for the Roman Empire. And this was difficult because the Roman Empire had conquered or had come into his country and conquered his people and oppressed his people. And so he was collecting taxes to fund the Roman Empire who had come in and conquered and oppressed his people and it was funding them to do that elsewhere. So this man was hated. Not only this, but he didn't just collect taxes to fund that, but tax collectors were infamous for, for collecting more than they needed to and putting it in their pockets so that they could become wealthy. They were stealing from people for their own gain. It would be like a, a corrupt pol politician you know, coming in and lining his own pockets secretly and stealing from the people that he's supposed to be helping. It would be like, a, you know, in my mind, like a drug dealer that's selling drugs in his own neighborhood to the kids around him in his own area to make money and to get his wealth off of the suffering of people around him. The despised tax collector. So it doesn't matter if you've heard this story before, because you've heard this story before, right? You've heard a story like this. It's pretty familiar, the, the Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, the good guy, the bad guy, the Jim and Dwight from The Office, maybe the Red Sox and the Yankees. I'll let you figure out which one is which. You know, maybe it's Chuck Norris and whatever poor soul gets in Chuck Norris's way. There's always this, we've all heard this story, the good guy and the bad guy. So they go into the temple to talk with God, and this is what happens in verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So the Pharisee's prayer, number one, he prayed, he stood apart from everybody. He prayed to himself apart from everybody else. And there's two parts of this prayer. One, I follow all the religious rules. I do all the right things. I follow all the rules. I'm good. I'm a good person. And number two, thus I am better than everyone else. I am comparatively awesome. Thank you, God, that I am not like those other people. See, and the Pharisee honestly wasn't completely wrong. See, if you look at, at you know, the, the training and the education that went into becoming a Pharisee, by the age of 12, by the age of 12, these Pharisees would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. Not like the names of them, but like literally what they said. They would have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fully, by the age of 12. They spent time in God's word. They tried to do what they thought was right. They followed the law. So, so in essence, they were doing a lot of good. But here's the problem. This is where the root of this morning is. Instead of realizing that what he had was a gift from God, he saw himself as a gift to God. Do you get it? Instead of realizing that what he had was a gift from God, he saw himself as a gift to God. But before we look down our noses at the Pharisees, we'd be wise to recognize the Pharisee that lives inside each one of us. Maybe you've had this thought, you know, where, where we should be thinking, thank you God for a great church family and, and a great place that I can come. Maybe the attitude and the posture of your heart is, God, you're welcome that I showed up to church today. 
Or maybe it's, God, thank you for blessing me with these finances so I can tithe and give and support missions teams and all these things. But, but in, in your head, instead of thinking that, you're thinking, God, you're welcome that I give. God, what would they do without me if I didn't give? Or maybe you should be thinking, God, thank you for the opportunity to serve on a team here as a greeter or a children's ministry or a worship team. But instead, in your heart, if you really were true to yourself and honest, you'd say, God, you're welcome that I'm giving you my precious time instead of doing something else. See, that sounds so bad to say those things, church, but if we really dig deep and look into our hearts, we realize that a lot of times we identify with the Pharisee in those ways because we stop seeing the good things in our lives as a gift from God, and we start seeing them as a gift to God. And that's the moment, church, that we begin to experience spiritual pride. See, spiritual pride falsely promises us three things. Number one, self-sufficiency. I've got this, I don't need anyone else, I can do it right myself, I'm a good person, I'm smart, I have it figured out, I've got this. The second, second thing that spiritual pride promises us is that self-importance. I am valuable. I live in the right neighborhood. You know, I, I, I am the glue that holds my life group together. You know, I have the right label on the purse, the right brand of purse in this area that, that I am valuable. And the third is this, self-exaltation. I am better. Everyone look at me. Look at the emblem on my car. Look at the clothes that I wear, they're the right brands. Tell me I'm great, I am better. See, here's the reality, spiritual pride is an inward-directed motion that leads to outward-directed actions. I'm gonna say that again. Spiritual pride is an inward-directed emotion that leads to outward-directed actions. See, we fall into the trap of thinking that our ultimate value is based on accomplishments, gifts, rule following, comparison to others, just like the Pharisee. And because of that, because we put our value in what we can do, how great we are, what our bank account might be, you know, how maybe how little we swear, or I don't drink as much as that guy, or I, didn't, I don't watch those movies, and we look at our value as how well we can follow the rules and how much we have and how much we can do. Our outward, um, our outward actions reveal the inward emotion in our heart. See, when we start relying on those things, it translates in the spiritual pride that's welling in it. When we make it about us and we say, well, you know, I'm good, me, 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 it translates into outward action. And that's where it gets dangerous. I mean, I think one of the biggest ways that we see this in our culture and that I personally struggle is with comparison. You know, ladies, maybe you thought this before. Look at what that lady is wearing to church this morning. I would never be caught dead walking out of the house wearing that. You know, I think that parents struggle with this one, especially young parents. Very, you know, it's very difficult. I struggle with this one a lot. You know, Lisa and I have two young kids and we're young parents and we're stumbling through it trying to figure it out. But it's so easy to compare how we're parenting to how other people parent. You know, my, it, it, we fall in that trap. You know, I have a, a, a sister and a brother-in-law who have a young kid. It's so easy to fall into a trap. You know, but we can also find ourselves saying things, you know, like, well, John and Michelle's kids, look at how crazy and out of control they are. At least our kids aren't as bad as their kids right? We find ourselves comparing and finding our value in that 
comparison, but it's easier to lift yourself up when you're pushing somebody else down and we make ourselves feel better. Maybe it's a comparison in the way of, of value. I don't need God because I'm better than all those Christians. Or I don't need to pursue God even more in these areas of my life because at least I don't look as bad as that guy and he claims to be Christian, so I'm better than him, so I'm good. Maybe it's a comparison through fault finding. Maybe you're an expert at finding faults in somebody else. You're an expert at seeing the shortcomings of other people instead of letting God reveal to you the faults in your own life. Or maybe it's just attention seeking. Look at me, look at how great my Instagram posts are. Look at all these different things. I'm gonna do whatever I can to make you notice how great I am. The inward emotion reflects our outward behavior and sometimes we say and we think things that we never thought we would. But I would say this this morning, church. I would say that many of us don't struggle with spiritual pride just because we think we're awesome. But I think that a lot of us this morning are trying to convince others, you know, God, ourselves, other people, that we are okay. We're trying to convince others that we are okay. See, there's this sneaky other side of spiritual pride. I'm gonna, for the sake of this morning, just call it reverse spiritual pride. And it's, it's things like maybe you can't receive a compliment. Like someone's like, nice shoes, or you're like, oh, well, I, just, I got them on sale. Or, or, hey, you did a great job at work today. Well, it, was, it wasn't as good as last week, or it wasn't as good as, as Bob, or my profit margin wasn't as good as, as this company. Or maybe you're the, I could never, I could never lift my hands in worship. I could never post Bible verses or serve in leadership. God could never use me. Or woe is me, I deserve better. So you might be asking, how are these two things connected? Because they seem very different, but let me tell you, the problem with reverse spiritual pride is that it's the same root thing and problem. It starts with the same thing, me. It starts with the same thing. It starts with the thought that my value is based on what I accomplish and how I compare to everyone else. Don't miss it. The root of it is my value is based on what I accomplish and how I compare to everyone else, just like who? The Pharisee. And ultimately, the problem with spiritual pride is this. And this is the, one of the points this morning is when we are full of ourselves, there's no room for God. When we are full, when you are full, when I am full of myself, there's no room for God. Look at the Pharisee's prayer. I've got it all together, and I'm better than everyone else. There's no room for God there. But Jesus shows us a different way, a better way, through the unexpected person. Let's pick up back in the story in verse 13. It says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, so he couldn't even bring himself to the temple, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He couldn't even look up. He was so guilt-stricken. And his response was, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Basically, in, in today's or our terms, God, don't give me justice. Don't give me what I deserve, but have mercy on me. See, he knew he understands at the core, and you can see this in his attitude and, and how he carried himself, he understood that if God didn't intervene in his story, if God didn't step in and intervene, then he was hopeless. See, the only way for a tax collector to be made right 
under the law was that they had to pay back every single penny of what they collected plus 20%. It was literally impossible. So he knew that without the intervention of God into his life, it was absolutely hopeless. And Jesus said this about that prayer in the next verse, moving on to verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went to his house justified right before God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, Jesus shocks the people that are listening to his story because the tax collector, the, the underdog, the one who was the sinner and the despised tax collector went home right before God, but the Pharisee, the guy who was supposed to have it figured out, did not. See, the Pharisee was full of spiritual pride, but the tax collector, listen, the tax collector emptied himself with a humble heart. You see, when we're full of ourselves, there's no room for God. But this is the second point, but when we empty ourselves, we are in a perfect position to be filled by God's grace. When we're full of our, or when we empty ourselves, we are in perfect position to be filled by God's grace. See, here's why this is good news for some of you this morning. Because some of you walked into church today and you're already feeling humbled. You know, maybe the life situation that you're dealing with at home or at work has completely humbled you. Or maybe the choices that you have made and the, and the hard decisions and the wrong decisions have brought you in this morning humbled, like the tax collector. Maybe you find yourself saying like the tax collector is saying that God, and this is your story, that God, if you don't intervene, I am hopeless. Maybe some of you feel humbled and hopeless this morning. Well, the good news for you is this, that God not only sees you, but he desires to intervene into your story and bring hope, mercy, and grace, and forgiveness. And he did through Jesus Christ on the cross. All we have to do is empty ourselves to be in a perfect position to be filled with God's grace. You know, I, I joke about, you know, me struggling with pride, but in, in, in all seriousness, I, I was very humbled to speak on this subject. Because if I look at my faith journey uh, as a believer, as a man of God, as a leader, as a pastor, this is an area that I truly, just being, I wanna be transparent with you this morning, that I truly have struggled with time and time again. Like this, if you ask my wife, this is constantly my prayer in an area of my life. I'm like, I, I just, it, it messes things up for me quite a bit. Because I find the attitudes of my heart coming out in ways that I don't desire them to. You know, when we first moved uh, here to Connecticut, you know, Lisa and I were engaged at that point, and we moved here. I moved here to be the student pastor at Valley Brook, and, you know, the student ministry, um, you know, was very small, and, and so I came in and just hit reset. And, and I thought I had all these great, you know, systems, and we rebranded. That's when Kalai was born, and the student ministry exploded. I mean, we, like, quadrupled in numbers. We had this big kickoff. They're used to having, you know, 10 to 15 kids. Our kickoff, we had like 85 students for this area and the size of the church. And I was like on cloud nine. It was great. Like the ministry was growing. Kids were coming to the Lord. There was so much fruit. I had a big team. It was exciting. And in the same time, you know, Lisa and I, um, you know, had both had full-time jobs. 
You know, and this was a time where like before in Tennessee, I was a musician. I did a lot of different things and worked at churches, but smaller churches. And so this was the first time that not only did I have like a really, you know, solid income, but my wife did as well. And we had benefits and two full-time jobs and, and, and no kids. And, and it was just, you know, because we were engaged at that point, And it was just like a blessing there. Like finally, I'm like, I've made it. And then I get married in that season. We moved here, we engaged, and then we had a destination wedding, and, and we come back, and I'm on cloud nine. I'm married. I'm making good money. Business is succeeding. I'm doing awesome. And even though like, I, I genuinely gave God glory, I also genuinely gave myself glory. I'm going to be real. It was so easy to come home and see how many students came to Clyde and just feel good and have that one you know, Twitter post of like, man, it was awesome to see 80 kids at Clyde tonight. And so then we get pregnant with our, our first child and, and like, again, like, this is, everything's going so great, but I remember how quickly it was awesome. It quickly fell apart. One night we were at Collide and, and Lisa comes up to me and, and she ended up having this horrible miscarriage at 13 weeks of our first child. And that was stripped away from me. And in the same time period, we got hit with some major bills that were unexpected. And, and we, and, and not we, but I made some bad financial decisions and put our finances in turmoil. And at the same season, we had a couple key students from our ministry move away. And with them went their friends. And we had a couple leaders who left. And there was turmoil there. And what I thought was amazing, and I had done all these great things, had suddenly fallen apart. And that was a dark season for me, church. I find myself saying, God, where are you? And some of you might be asking this question this season of your life. God, where are you? I've done all this. I'm in full-time ministry. I moved across the country. I'm giving you all this time. God, where are you? Why won't you help? God, are you hearing me? And I went on a trip and I was with a friend, his name is Josh, and he's been just an amazing uh, man of God and spiritual influence in my own life. And I remember I was on this trip and everything was going so well, but like my heart was just depressed and sad and just broken and hurting. I couldn't figure out why. And so I, it, we were out one night doing a big worship thing and I sat in the back and Josh came and he's like, we need to talk. And we went into the back room and he said, what's going on? I'm like, dude, everything is falling apart. And I told him all that was going on and, and all of these different things. And he looked at me and see, this is the value of having an honest friend in your life. And he said, Dan, your value is so wrapped up in your success that you're not leaning on God at all. That your value is the fact that you're a great student pastor, that you're a, you know, a, a great husband, or that you have all this money, or that you're doing all these things. But the reality is your value is fully tied in the fact that you are son of God. And those are just other stuff. And in that moment, God began to reveal to me in a very humble, hard moment of my life, man, I have been completely carrying this on my own strength. And I've been so prideful because it was all about me and being successful and comparing myself when the reality was that really when I saw ministry start to thrive was when I got out of the way. So you might be right now, you might be here Maybe you have an adult child who's gone off the rails and, and you've tried everything and you did all that you could, but you don't know how to help. Maybe your financial situation is a mess and you don't know how to dig yourself out of a hole. Maybe your marriage has been rough 
for years and you've tried everything and you don't care even about making it great, you just wanna make it work. See, all the time we posture ourselves like the Pharisee. But the problem is, is that when we're trying to do it ourselves, we're looking for a goal that is completely unattainable and really in essence we're building a prison to live in. But if we can refocus and readjust and look like the tax collector, then God can do more than we could ever deserve or earn. When we empty ourselves, we are in the perfect position to be filled by God's grace. And lastly, when we empty ourselves, we are in the perfect position to be used by God. See, some people have asked me this summer, you know, are, are you nervous, you know, to speak? Are you nervous to come up? And, and there's been little nerves, but one of the things that God has put on my heart this summer is, is that every time I sit there and I'm in worship and, and we have just this amazing band that ushers us in to the presence of God and I'm sitting there and I pray the prayer, God, help this not be about how eloquent I am or about how great I can tell a story, about how vibrant I can be or funny, but God, help them to see you in me. And it's amazing how every single time, I'm not just making this up because it's convenient, this is my heart, every single time I do that, the fear is completely stripped away. The anxiety is completely stripped away. You know, I'm, I'm processing my message and I'm overthinking it and immediately my mind is calmed. Because I knew that when Clark asked me to do this when he stepped out this summer, I knew that God was calling me, that God equipped me, and that he would be glorified through me. See, when you humble yourself before God, church, you're not operating out of a position of weakness. That's a misconception that's wrong. But instead, when you humble yourself before God, you're operating out of a place of strength because it's God's strength, not yours. My desire is that, and my prayer for you is that it wouldn't be our strength, our sufficiency, our important, our, our name being lifted up that would drive us, but it would be a position of strength because God is sufficient through Jesus Christ and he is enough for me no matter how he uses me. See, God has called each one of us. He's called you, he's called me, and he's equipped you. And God will be glorified through you, whether you like it or not. But there's this thing that I hear a lot, like I, I'm, I'm just a stay-at-home parent. Listen carefully, there's no such thing as just in the kingdom of God. That God puts you in your home with your kids to raise them like, like he desires for you to raise them to be mighty men and women for the kingdom and that you're there for a reason and for a purpose and that's your mission field. Or maybe you're saying, I'm just a construction worker. Well, there's no such thing as just in the kingdom of God that God has placed you on a mission field that I'll never be able to go in and that God has placed you around people that you can daily love and talk to, and then maybe you volunteer on Wednesday night at Collide, and, you, and maybe you're in a, a small group with a bunch of teenage boys, and you can reflect what it looks like to be a man of God in front of those boys. There's no such thing as just in the kingdom of heaven. God will work through you and be glorified through you. See, pride is about my glory, but humility is about God's glory. So church this morning, how do we do that? How do we empty ourselves before God? What does that look like? And there's a lot of great ways that I could teach you and there's lists of things, you know, you can you know, confess, you can serve, you can do all these things, but, but the Lord put something specific on my heart this morning 
that helps us when we are, when I am, and this is what I've learned for myself, but that, that I'm hoping that we can use together as a church moving forward when we're experiencing those inward emotions that are leading to those outward actions, we'd ask ourselves this one question. So simple, but it's so foundational. Is this about my glory or is this about God's glory? Is this about my glory or is this about God's glory? And where I find my value, is this about my glory or God's glory? And how I planned my life or my business or my family, is this about my glory or, or God's glory? And how I spend my money or how I spend my time, is this about my glory or about God's glory? See, pride promises you freedom through being enough, but delivers a prison of an unattainable goal. But humility Asking that question and meaning it and functioning out of that offers a freedom that you can't experience outside of Jesus Christ. So this morning as we close, I think the reality of this is it's not just a simple one thing that we can figure out and get rid of, but pride is like peeling back the layers of an onion. You know, as I was studying, I heard somebody compare it to that, but it's so true that, that as we find one area in our life that we might struggle with spiritual pride, we peel that back and it exposes another you know, maybe you've dealt with comparison in your life. Maybe you're, you've identified that and you've dealt with it, and as you peel it back, maybe he's shown you another area. Maybe it's the I could nevers. Maybe it's the I'm so great. Maybe it's, it's the woe is me's. Matthew 5, 16 says this. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Not that they may see your good deeds and think you're awesome that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, God has called you, me, us. He's equipped us, and he's going to use us to bring glory to his name. In close, the problem with pride is that when we're full of ourselves, there's no room for God. But church, let that not be us. Because if we continuously have the posture of emptying ourselves, then we are put in the perfect position to be filled with his grace and to be used by him. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing here at Valley Brook. And Father, we give you all the glory. And Father, even as we looked into your word this morning, this was, I know, convicting for me and challenging for me, and I'm sure for many of us, you spoke to our hearts this morning. Father, I pray, though, boldly that this would be a face-to-face -face moment that we have, a humbling, a, a, a exposing moment in each one of our lives that you would literally, in this moment, right now, in this place, expose an area of each of our lives that we're wrestling with spiritual pride. Expose that area in our lives, that layer of that that onion as we peel it back. But God, I pray even bolder that this morning that area would be broken in the name of Jesus. That if we struggle with comparison, that it would be broken and we'd lay that before your feet and we start to identify that. And Father, that daily we would refocus our attention on you and that we would no longer try to do it ourselves and figure it all out and, and compare and compete. We would no longer be the Pharisee, but Father, that we would humble ourselves and be like the tax collector so we can receive your grace and be used by you in a mighty way in this region. So Father, we give you those areas. We ask that you would move, that you would expose them, that you'd help us to help one another grow in these things and look more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
So church, I'm gonna release you uh, this morning and just quickly, we have growth track. Um, it's it's a, one of the ways that we share with you about you know, who God is and how he's moving in our church and, and about membership and all those different things. Today is growth track step two, which starts at 1230 in the venue. So if you haven't been to step two yet, even if you haven't been to step one, go to step two, check it out. This has been everybody's favorite class. It's really awesome. You learn how you're wired and how God can use you. But church, this morning as you go, let this not just be like, oh, that was good, and then walk out. But have these conversations. Husbands, ask your wife. <laughs> Wives, ask your husband. Share with each other. Help each other grow. Let's help each other look more like Jesus. Because the more that God makes us look more like him, then the more that he can use us to impact this area. Let me give you the blessing this morning. May the love of God, the grace of Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Go in peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.